Praise the Lord. Man, makes me wish I could sing. All right. It's been great to be with you, and we've had just a wonderful time. You've been so kind. People's dropped by, visited us, gave us steak. <laughs> Man, I mean, we've had all kinds of stuff today and uh, this week, and gosh, has been so faithful. I want to share with you one time, uh, one more time, out of Revelation chapter 1. And this is a brand new study. And again, I told you this week, no big deal. Hey, you're probably not interested in this. If I were you, I wouldn't be. But um, we have a CD of the Month study club, and this is November's right here. I've already recorded December and January. <laughs> but uh, this has been a really difficult study for me. And we, I, I, October and November, we're in Revelation. And then um, December and January, we're in John. And so, but this one has been just a really difficult study for us. And it's in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. And it's the concluding statements of the praise section. And it's a prophecy. And I just, it's been really difficult, but uh, it kind of came together at the beginning of this week. And uh, just really have been doing some great things in my life. I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, Revelation 1, 7 and 8. I want to give you a working, uh, just a working understanding of the first chapter, kind of refamiliarize us a little bit with this chapter and what's been taking place. Um, the book of Revelation, many sections to it. The first chapter primarily is an introducing of the prophecy uh, for both the readers and the seven churches in the uh, province of Asia. So in other words, the first chapter is given over by John as a, prepar a, a kind of a preparation for the prophecy. There's a number of things that are taking place. There are actually, we've divided it up, that is, into four sections, the first chapter. There are four preparation sections. The first, um, the first section of the first chapter is verses 1 through 3, and that's the prologue, and we've talked about that already this week. What the prologue does is it prepares the reader for the book of uh, Revelation, the book of prophecy. And the, verse, the first three verses, the prologue, what it does is it tells us that everything going on in the book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. In other words, every bit of the prophecy is centered on him. It's all about him. Everything that God is doing is in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that God does outside of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the book of prophecy. In other words, in other ways to say this, you can't come into the book of Revelation to find out who the Antichrist is. Hey, is the United States going to be around in the end times? Um, you know, hey, when are we going to be out of here? See, that's not, those are not themes. They have People, I mean, there's those times and dates and significant events are present, but see, the tone of the book of Revelation is on Jesus. Really significant. He says that to us in the first three verses. Prologue section. The next section, and we've looked at some of this this week, is the persons section. Verses 4 and 5. And that's where the persons of our Godhead is presented to us. When you get in the book of Revelation, you're going to see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is how they're described. Verses 4 and 5. You have the prologue and then the persons. The third section, which is where we're going to be at tonight, verses 5 down through verse 8, uh, that's the praise section. And we're just ecstatic about what we're finding in this. The last section is verses 9 through the end of the chapter, and we're already beginning to saturate in this and deal with this. This is the Patmos experience. Uh, it's where John is actually uh, trans he's, he's transported off this island in the spirit somehow, some type of vision scenario, and he's to write down everything that he's uh, to see. And so this is where the commissioning of the writing of this prophecy takes place. Okay, now, now the meat. I want to look with you tonight at the praise section. Um, now the praise section, again, as we've been dealing with this, it's the tone of the book of Revelation. And I was so surprised at this. I'd never really... I mean, obviously, hey, we're going to praise God. I mean, 
He's so good, you just have to praise God. He's so phenomenal, and he's worthy of glory and honor and praise. Well, I know that, but um, I'm a preacher. <laughs> okay? I'm not a singer. I like to preach. and I, like to, I, I'm, I told you earlier about the project we're doing with the school. You can give your life to anything. Uh, first time I went overseas on a missions trip was when I traveled as an intern with a guy named Dr. Stephen Manley. And we went to Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico, I mean, I never looked at it as a third world country. But, I mean, there were up in the area, up in the mountains areas that we went and preached where people did not have a Bible. And I was so, I mean, I mean, how do you, what do you do without a Bible, man? I mean, you can come up with all kinds of all kinds of crazy beliefs, which you do have overseas in some third world countries. They have these obscure and awkward doctrines and you think, well, how do you come to those kind of conclusions? I mean, I met a man in Africa who had like 11 wives. And I thought, hey, that's kind of, you know. But he didn't have a working... He had like a few pages here and there and apparently missed the other pages, you know. So uh, there were some difficulties with that kind of stuff and... And so, hey, I, I wanted to give myself, and then you have the problem also of just, not just getting the Bible in their hand, but a working translation of the Bible and those kinds of things. And so, I really want to give myself, until I retire around 90, I want to give myself to the proclamation of the message. Uh, hey, honestly, I want to give myself to the proclamation of the message. So, hey, I'm into preaching, I'm into, I'm into presenting the word, I've given my life to that. I'm not into singing. I can sing, I do sing, I have a joyful noise that comes out of me. So when I came into the whole praise section, I was almost like a fish out of water kind of thing. What do you do with this? And as you begin to look in the book of Revelation, it becomes evident that you have a praise section here in the opening chapter, which prepares us for the prophecy. It's there because the entire book of Revelation is hung on praise. Everyone in the kingdom, everyone who is a Christian, has this internal kind of praise that's going on. You can't bottle that thing up. You can't contain it. It's, it's something that's taking place in the life of every single believer. Now, some of the content of this praise, some of the things that they're praising about is fantastic. It opens up in verses 5 and 6 with this declaration that God loves us. He's going to free us from our sinful lifestyle to make us a kingdom and priests. To serve his God. We are literally be the place where his authority dwells. And we are in on the day in and day out priest kind of activities in our world. Which is fantastic. Now, when you come down into verses 7 and 8, you have a prophecy section. Um, verse 7 down through 8 is prophecy. It's forth telling kind of stuff. Now, again, when I was first began to deal with the book of Revelation, I was not a prophecy buff. I'm still not a prophecy buff. But I had to become a little bit familiar with prophecy. And one of the things that I begin to have to deal with is that, you know, what's the nature of prophecy? And see, I always thought, uh, well, prophecy literally means, or the prophet literally means to foretell. It's, one's to te it's one who tells something that's going to take place in the future. Biblically, concerning our God, a prophet is one who comes and says, hey, these are the things that God is going to do. So the prophet does so a prophecy is about stuff that's out there. And I'll be really honest with you. I never got interested in that. Because that's stuff that's down there. I'm concerned about stuff that's right here. I never got comfort from that. 
People think, I've had people tell me, but, you know, in the midst of their struggling lifestyle, they think about, wow, someday I'll have a mansion in glory. Well, yeah, now I've got a hole in my roof and there's rain coming in. And, and that just doesn't help me much. Thanks. It's, it, yeah, I guess it's inspiring, but, you know, and, hey, I've got a flat tire on the side of the road in the middle of the night and my baby's crying, my wife's harping. She doesn't harp. But um, she's upset and all of this. I just don't walk outside and go, wow, streets of gold, praise the Lord. <laughs> that, just, that never did do it for me. It's there, praise the Lord, I'm happy about it. But prophecy was never a big encouragement to me because it was a future kind of a thing. But one of the things that I found significant is that when you begin to look at prophecy, this was, this was new for me, when you begin to look at prophecy from a biblical perspective, from both Old Testament and New Testament in the framework of their culture, in their religious system, how they understood prophecy, prophecy was a foretelling. This is so neat. This is new news to me, probably old news to you. But prophecy was a foretelling. In other words, God is going to bring this to pass. And it was so concrete, it was so true, that literally it changed the way you live right now. In other words, God would come along and say, oh, I'm going to bring this to pass. And people said, wow, you can bank on that. And literally, it changed the way they live now. So prophecy wasn't just, and this was big for me, prophecy wasn't just a future thing. Prophecy was God says, this is what I'm going to bring to pass in your future. And because I'm so sure, because this is absolute truth, this is not God saying, I'll do it. And you stand around going, boy, I wonder if he's going to come through on that. This is, I'm going to bring something to pass, and it's absolutely so concrete that it changes the way you live right now. You would say, give me an example of this. This is all over the New Testament. God has a number of promises that he makes to Abram. God comes to this guy by the name of Abram and his wife Sarah, who's really pretty. And he changes their name in covenant. Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Okay? Enters into covenant with them has all these phenomenal promises. It says, I'm talking about a son and all of that kind of stuff. And then you have the barrenness of Sarah that you have to deal with. But hey, the son comes. One day, Abraham's with Isaac, probably playing football, hanging out. God comes, tells Abraham, hey, I want you to take the son, the son of the promise that, I'm, that I've given you, and I want you to take him to a mountain that I will show you. I'll tell you where it's at. Doesn't tell him it's down around the corner. He says, you just go and I'll direct you. And I want you to take him there and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Okay? Tells him this. Now Abraham says, all right. Packs up everything, going on, a, going on a trip to the sacrifice. Tells Isaac, get your stuff, you're coming with me. So they're on their way. They get to the place and we know the whole story. I mean, I have a son. <laughs> I mean, I don't look at the Bible in terms of fairy tale. I mean, could you imagine that? I mean, that's just, how, how could you do that? Um, God speaks to him, says, do this. Takes him to the mount. He goes up and climbs up with his boy. Ties him up and he's getting ready to sacrifice him. Lifts up the knife. God intervenes. And it's interesting, I always misunderstood this. God said, hey, don't. I will provide the sacrifice. And Abraham looks up and there's a lamb or, or a ram and he, he sacrifices that. But when you read that passage... It's not, it's not misunderstood from their perspective or from Abraham's that Ab the, the ram was not the sacrifice. Because in that same passage, that Abraham says, or Moses as he writes, says, until this day, and Moses is writing, so this is, I mean, this is, I mean, Moses wrote this, and after Abraham, of course, you've got the whole Lot deal, and then you've got the settling down of, the, of his clan, and then you've got the whole uh, Joseph deal, and the Egypt deal, and the whole time in Egypt, the 400 years in Egypt. So this is hundreds and hundreds of years prior, even until... 
as Moses is pinning this down, hundreds of years later, that place, which is marked as a holy place, is still called God will provide. So the sacrifice was not the deal that God said, I will provide. It wasn't the ram. God said, I will provide the sacrifice. Do you know what's so neat on that? This is so phenomenal. That was so guaranteed. That was, they counted on that. In fact, the whole sacrificial system in Judaism spun off of that kind of a thing. That was so concrete that when you go into modern-day New Testament times, what would be then modern-day New Testament times, do you know where they place that mount? Not only Jews, not only Christians, but also Muslims place that, place that place, place that mount at Golgotha. Traditionally, historically, all three place that at Golgotha. And Jesus, literally, can you think about this? See, God in Christ fulfills that promise. So prophecy was, God comes to Abraham and says, Oh, how can I communicate to you what I'm going to do for you? How can I communicate to you the depth of what I'm going to give to you? Take your son and go do this. And then steps in and says, No, I'll provide my own son. And that whole shaping, that was so absolutely concrete that that future declaration of God literally shaped the way they lived in the Old Testament. That's where you have, for instance, the same kind of language as the, as the sacrificial lamb kind of stuff. I had to come to grips with this, that there was nothing specific about the lamb without, you know, spot or blemish. It was a lamb. <laughs> what made that lamb significant, what made that lamb anything, was what was going to happen in Christ. So literally, the dwelling of God with man and the covering of sin, was a, this was all a foreshadow. God says, hey, I'm going to do this. It hasn't taken place yet, but my word is so concrete, it's so much of a sure thing that it's almost like it's already done in my, for, in my foresight, and therefore you can bank on it now. You with me on that? That's huge. That's huge. Now, we as Christians have all kinds of examples of that. On the, on the immature level, you have the whole fear of hell. <laughs> that decides the way we live right now. Okay? The, the, the repercussions of an ungodly lifestyle dictates the way that I live right now. But that's, a, that's, a, that's, not, that's so introductory. And your Christian life can't be based on fear of going to hell. Your, your Christian life is about faith and trusting and walking in Jesus and everything that He said is true and everything that He said He's going to bring to pass in your life is going to take place. And I'm living in response to that based off what He said. I mean, none of us has physically seen Jesus. None of us has physically seen Jesus. But we believe and we trust and we know and we sense and there's a moving and the Holy Spirit, which is the third member of the Trinity, is literally reminding us and opening our eyes to the second person that we haven't seen yet. And we live according to that. <laughs> Are you with me? Everybody's going, looking at me. Okay, so prophecy was really significant to me. This was a huge jump for me. Because prophecy wasn't just about a future thing. Prophecy was a future declaration of God. God said it, and that just was so sure. You could bank on that kind of a thing. I mean, it absolutely so sure, it affected the way that I live right now. Okay, So prophecy, the foretelling word of God, changed the way people lived. This was significant. Because, and you take this on the, just a couple of illustrations that meant a lot to me. I always felt bad for the lamb. Really. I mean, you kill a poor lamb. What did he do? Good night, poor guy. You grow up praising God you're born a bird or a goat or something. Well, goats are in on that too. Hey, I don't know, squirrel maybe. But, um, hey, what's, what's the deal with the lamb? And they had to sacrifice the lamb. See, I, there was emotion in that. There was... Abraham and the sacrificing of his son, there was 
Could you imagine the emotional scarring? I bet Abraham went through counseling for years after that kind of thing. Not to mention Isaac. Can you imagine what he told mom? Dad is psycho, I'm telling you. Tried to kill me up there. Anyway, so hey, there's, I mean, Abraham did not listen to his emotions. He listened to the foretelling of God. So there is a pattern being set. Now hear this, this is really important. See, literally, prophecy has to do with, it is the foretelling word of God that's so true that literally it dictates the way that I live over emotions, over my opinions, over what I see is true. See, God says, hey, this is true. And I look at him and say, wow, boy, it doesn't look like that to me. But how am I going to live? Am I going to respond to the foretelling word of God in my life? Or am I going to respond to the way I feel? Before I was a Christian, I responded to emotions. I'll give you an example. I'm not a really huge tough guy. I'm not a pushover. But I was, uh, I was a jock when I was younger. And I uh, got into high school. I, I started all the way through, you know, up through my elementary years. And then when I got in middle school... Sixth grade was great, but then I started, I didn't mature. Everyone else got bigger and I stayed the same. I didn't go through maturity until I was a junior in high school. So it was brutal, man. It was brutal. I was this five foot seven, you know, 105 pound junior. You know, I mean, it was just, it was wretched. It was horrible, man. I was just, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even start growing until I was a junior. And in a junior, I was about 5'10". But I grew all the way up until I was 23 years old. It's, I, hey, I don't know what happened. God made me. But um, I developed this, this kind of attitude, especially when I got in the Marine Corps. I just got tired of being picked on. And so I got this kind of fighting mentality. And it's kind of a history with my family. And so I developed this mentality of just, you know, hey... God gave me five fingers and a thumb to ball up and you could throw that at people. Hey, it works pretty good. And I let that dictate me. And See, I, I had this misconception, not truth, that punching a guy in the mouth would help him. <laughs> Ultimately, that's what I thought. But now as a Christian, that doesn't change a guy. That doesn't change the way he thinks. See, you've got a, you've got a guy that... That, hey, gets and he's you know, driving down the road and, and he, he, he gives you some obscenities in his car. And I, this, is, this is not a made-up story. I was in Indianapolis about a year and a half ago and I'm pulling off of this light and, and I'm lost in Indianapolis looking for a particular place. There's this girl next door. She's got a convertible. And I lean out the window of my truck. I had a truck at that time. I was like, hey, where's this store at? And she's like, oh, you go up here, you turn right, and it's right there. That quick of a conversation. The light turned green in the midst of that. And this guy, big overweight guy behind me in his car just really just obnoxious he started laying on his horn and screaming and yelling and inside of me this is just a couple years ago inside of me that took place and we pulled around the corner which was hysterical because everybody turned but we all turned and stopped it's so always stopped right there and I could see him he tilted his mirror and locked his door because he thought that I was going to get out of that car he's lucky that I was a Christian because some guys would have got out. But I knew in my mind, now hear this, I don't, I can't, I can't listen to emotions. I can't listen to that. Some people call it temptations, maybe, maybe the devil's there going, go get him or whatever. But I can't, I don't listen to emotions because emotions tell me, get out and help that guy. Well, that's not going to help that guy. Beating the tar out of that guy may make me feel better, but beating the tar out of that guy will not, he, see, he's not going to walk away from that thing and go, wow, I'm changed forever. I'll never do that to another person. He's not going to do that. Why? Because the change in his life has to be a spiritual change in his life. And that's all kinds of applications to that. 
You can make a teenager come in and sit and pay attention. It's not going to change them one iota. It takes an absolute inward change in their life of God that does the change. I've seen it a thousand times. That's what has to take place. So I don't listen to emotions. For instance, one of those small ones. I got in a, a conversation with a lady some time ago about Judas and about the difference between repentance and forgiveness. Or, I'm sorry, repentance and um, sorrow or feeling sorry. Okay? There's a difference between as repenting and asking for forgiveness. Okay? There's a difference between re repentance and feeling sorry. When we're talking about forgiveness of sin in the New Testament, we're not talking about remorse for sin. We're talking about repentance of sin. You can be remorseful for your sin and not be forgiven. Forgiveness comes from repentance. In other words, you have a person that comes up and weeps and cries and is absolutely just distraught. I can't believe I did this. Oh, forgive me. And they can walk out of here and not be different and not be forgiven. Because forgiveness is not the product of feeling sorry. Re forgiveness is the product, biblically, of repentance, which says, hey, I am going to turn from this lifestyle and I'm going to face a whole new direction in my life. I'm not living like that anymore. You say, give me a biblical example of that. Judas Judas was one of the, I think the only of the twelve, biblically, that showed remorse to the point of going back and trying to undo what he did, throwing the money back, say, I've sinned, betrayed innocent blood. Judas died, we know biblically, died and went to hell. Because though Judas was remorseful, Judas did not repent. Judas didn't say, hey, I'm going to stop living for myself out of my own direction, out of my own feelings, listening to the way that I feel, listening to the way that I see, and I'm going to respond to the foretelling of Jesus Christ. He never came to that conclusion. So, are you with me on that? There's a difference between living according to your emotions, according to the way you feel, according to the way you see, according to the way you think you... Hey, I look at my wife and think, boy, I could fix her, just give me a couple weeks. But see, that's not the way, hey, I can't control and manipulate. Literally, I have to live in response to the truth of God's Word and what He wants to accomplish. So there's a difference between listening to emotions and listening to truth. Okay, here's what I'm trying to tell us, really easy. Prophecy is a foretelling of what God is going to do. That's absolutely so sure if you can count on it right now. In other words, when I read the Bible, hey, God is going to, he's going to form me and mold me. He's going to change my life. He's going to bring about everything that he desired in my life. And therefore, I am not going to respond out of the flesh. I'm not going to live based the way I feel. I'm not going to live based off the way I think. I'm not going to live based on my own intuition and my own understanding. I'm going to live, eat, and breathe this book. And anything anyone tells me that does not come back to this, I'm dumping it. Period. This is the authority of my life. This is the truth. That's the way they viewed prophecy. That's the way they viewed scripture. So, so prophecy, this is really significant. So in verses 7 and 8, this prophecy, and, uh, and for that matter, this is representative. Now remember, the first chapter prepares you for revelation. Verses 7 and 8 is representative of all that's going to take place in the book of Revelation. It is a foretelling that's so true that literally it shapes our life right now. It shapes the way that I live. Hey, I hear this and I go, yes, I want that in my life. Now, the question we would ask then is, okay, what actually is being said in verses 7 and 8? Obviously, it's a proclamation of future events that are to change my life right now. Well, what's actually being said? Verses 7 and 8. Let me read it and then we'll go through it. Verses 7 and 8 read, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Didn't say that. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. That's actually included in some translations. NIV just reads, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, first part. Verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Now, everything going on in verse 7 is future declaration. Some of it's obvious in English. Every eye will see Him. That's future. And those who, uh, even those who pierced Him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. That's future stuff. But in verse 7, He is coming with the clouds. Coming is in the present tense. It means it hasn't arrived yet, so that's future but it's a coming that's in the future. In other words, it's a future that's quickly approaching us. In other words, the return of Christ, and the way, this is the way you can look at it, every day that transpires is one day closer to Christ's arrival. He's one day closer. He's on his way. Oh, one day closer. So there's this movement of Christ. He's literally on his way. He's coming. Now, here's the significant part. It says he is coming with the clouds. Now... I almost just said, oh, he's coming with the clouds. Hey, weather conditions. It's going to be cloudy. I'll keep that in mind. That's what I was thinking with the clouds. But when you look, and I just, just did a fun study on this. When you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, did you know, I wasn't aware of this, did you know that God is, is really uniquely, of all the things that God is associated with, you know, lightning and thunder and power and glory, he's most often communicated or described in like cloud form. I wasn't aware of that. All over the place. For example, if you can keep up, come back with me to the book of Exodus. I want to look at just a couple passages. Chapters uh, 14 and 16 is where we're going to be intermittently. I'm going to flip back and forth to Psalm, but you can stay in, in uh, Exodus. You see this, it's really pronounced, uh, of course, in the Exodus scene where they're, they're leaving and crossing the sea. Uh, the first one, uh, it talks of uh, in Exodus chapter 14... And there's two examples of this in chapter 14, verse 23 and 24. This here is interesting because literally God is in the cloud, but the whole position of God is intricately tied to this cloud deal and his protection. It's literally God protects them from, from within the cloud relationally the cloud verses 23 and 24 the egyptians pursued them and all pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea during the last watch of the night the lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the egyptian army and threw it into confusion so literally the figure of god if you had to put him in the passage hey he is in this fire cloud kind of figure uh, kind of position, which is also similar to some references uh, later on when you have the psalmist writing, and I'll just read these to you, uh, in Psalm 105, verse 39, this, is, this became almost, because this is all over the, this is all over uh, Exodus and Numbers, you know, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that kind of deal, but in Psalm 105, verse 39, the psalmist writes that he spread out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. 
So it's a recanting, it's a, it's, a, it's a restating. In fact, this was a song that they sang. So God was associated with this cloud today. I thought that was really interesting. You also read in Exodus chapter 16, so if you just can turn one page over, God's presence is really strongly associated again in the cloud. Down in verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. And again, that's also uh, referenced when, and you don't have to turn to this, but the whole tent of meeting that they set up and the people of Israel camped around, I found this significant. Every time God came down, it was the cloud. The cloud would come down and settle over the tent. Oh, hey, God's there. Moses, be, be right back, honey. Got to go out and talk to God. And so Moses and Aaron would go out, enter into the cloud. When they were getting the Ten Commandments, literally the cloud of fire and smoke and all that stuff's going on, Moses ascended into that. I thought it significant that in the Old Testament, God always was associated when he came, the presence in a cloud kind of a deal. Isn't that interesting? Now you go into the New Testament and it's the same kind of thing. The Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud falls. Jesus ascends into a cloud. Okay? Uh, at the trans and, and in fact, the angels say specifically, hey, that when he comes, he's going to come in the exact same way. Now, if, I, don't, I imagine you don't have the Apocrypha, but the Apocrypha were the intertestamental writings that, though we do not consider authoritative as Scripture, were certainly referenced by early church um, you know, people, early church Christians, the disciples certainly were aware of them. And in Maccabees, the second coming of the Messiah, the Messiah when he comes to claim the crown and kingship of God, literally is associated with clouds. So, hey, God had been speaking. They were really aware that this whole idea of the cloud, uh, God came in the cloud. Now, when you bring that into Revelation, go back if you would. I just wanted to give you a brisk walk of where I went in the study of this whole cloud deal. I found it significant, and again, chapter 1 prepares you for the prophecy, that not just in chapter 1, but when you begin to go into the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you one example of this, and I'll just read it. But in chapter 14 of Revelation, Jesus is presented uh, in verses 14 through 16, and guess where he's sitting? <laughs> I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called with a loud voice of him who was sitting on the cloud. So Jesus is sitting on the cloud in chapters 19 and 20 and all of that when he comes, and he's, hey, he's coming with the clouds. Now, if clouds was a symbol of God, okay, especially in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God came in the clouds. This, this figure of Christ is being enveloped with the crowd. He comes with the crowd. It's, it's a statement, I really believe this is accurate, that, hey, in terms of God's moving in the book of Revelation, everything that God is going to do, and it's consistent with the theme, everything takes place in Christ. If God's going to move, when God's coming, the whole, the whole bringing about of the plan of God and our redemption is wrapped up in Jesus. Okay? Wrapped up in Jesus. First part of verse 7. And I know that's a lot of information, but I thought it was important to, to walk you through that. Verse 7 says, Behold, He's coming with the cloud. This great movement of God. Jesus is at the center heart of the movement of God. In fact, God does not move outside of Jesus. Then He says a couple of significant things. He says, And every eye will see Him. Now, don't be deceived on this, because I almost missed this. When He says, Every eye will see Him, I, he's not talking about physical sight here. There are two different Greek words that John uses in his books. They're used throughout the New Testament as well. 
that uh, we translate see. Two different Greek words we translate see. One is the Greek word for physical sight. One is the Greek word for insight or perception. Now we looked at this Sunday morning in verse 16 of John chapter 16 when Jesus says, in a little while you will physically not see me and then after a little while you will perceive me. The word here in our passage, and every eye will see him, is the Greek word perceive. Now think about this. <laughs> there are people who are missing today. They don't get it. They don't see. But there is this bold declaration. This is what he says. At the last day, and this is all over the New Testament. Pastor and I were actually talking about this on the, uh, just before the service. That every eye will see him. Every eye. You understand at the second coming of Christ, everyone are going to see the, the magnitude of who Jesus is. Well, you and I are just getting in on everyone. See, no one's going to be able to dismiss that. No one's going to stand. Like you get in, you ever got in an argument with someone about, about a true statement? And no matter, no matter how plain it is, no matter how, I mean, you can just explain that thing and go at it and they'll just say, they refuse to recognize, they refuse to agree, they, they just say, oh yeah, well, we'll just agree not to, to agree, the, that kind of a statement. That is absolutely not the case with Jesus Christ. At the last judgment, every eye will see him. And then he adds, even those who pierced him. The idea of pierced him are those who were responsible for his death back when he lived. Hey, they are going to see him. All the wrong, everyone who was ever created are going to see Jesus. We're going to see him. Now, there's a couple different passages that I was looking up. A uh, pastor brought up one of them to me because I couldn't seem to place it. It's in the book of uh, Philippians, chapter 2. Listen to this. This is in the whole... Uh, this is in the whole humanity of Christ section. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, everyone. And it's not, now get this, <laughs> this is so neat, because it's not just like, all right, it's not the beaten down dog kind of thing where, oh, yep, you win, I got beat, okay, you're Lord. Not that kind of thing. There is a recognition that, oh, everything that he said was true. Everything that, he, everything that was proclaimed, everything that I ever heard, absolutely, absolutely, everything was true. Now, this is said in several different places, and it's quoted, actually, from a passage in the book of Isaiah, but I'm not going to read you that passage, but Paul quotes it. And Isaiah 49 is where it comes from, but Paul writes in chapter 14 of Romans, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will confess, period. This is the same language that's used in our passage in Revelation. Uh, hey, he writes... Every eye will perceive Him. Everyone will see the fullness of who He is, even those who pierced Him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn for Him. There's going to be an absolute understanding, a seeing, a revelation, a complete unveiling. Hey, He is everything that He said He is. Everyone will have this. Now, it's interesting that He's tacks on there, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. Now, of the earth, the people of the earth, there are two groups that are going on in the kingdom. You have the people of the kingdom and you have the people of the world. The people of the world or the people of the earth, it's all the same language. You can use that interchangeably. You have the people of the, wor uh, the, people of the kingdom. The characteristic, the number one characteristic of the people of the kingdom are people who are living a life of... Starts with a P, ends with a raise. Praise! 
They're people of praise. All throughout the book of Revelation, they're going, yes! And they're contrasted with another group. That's wailing and mourning. There are two groups of people that are presented and that are going to be unveiled at the last day. Now get this. We're hearing this now. There are two groups. Everyone is going to see that, oh, everything that he said is true. Everything, everything that was proclaimed, the fullness of who he is going to be unveiled. And one group's going to go, yes! And the other group's going to go, oh, man, bummer. <laughs> and one group's going to wail and mourn. And then he says, so shall it be, amen. That's the strongest, I learned this, that's the strongest way to express, this is, in their language, this is exactly how it's going to be. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, here's the question that's proposed to us. What does that have to do with me? What does this, this prophecy of truth about, hey, everything that, everything that he's ever said will come to pass. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the sum total of everything we're to be about. And hey, everyone is going to see that, even those who are responsible for his death. And there are going to be those who are praising and there's going to be those who are mourning. How does that change my life right now? That is to shape the way we live. Literally, that I am to give myself to that. I'm to give myself and say, hey... I, I, I want to allow that to shape the way that I live. I want to respond to truth. I don't want to live on emotions. And that is so, it's so easy to get wrapped up into that. Before I was a Christian, I think I told you this week, uh, before I was a Christian, uh, I wasn't an evil, like demonic, murderer, kind of Satan-worshipping person. Um, I just didn't live for Jesus. I got wrapped up into drugs. Why? Because I did not believe the truth that Jesus is the only one that can fulfill me. Jesus is the only one that can bring peace and happiness and, and Jesus is the only one in my life that can bring order and reconciliation. And Hey, I didn't buy that. I didn't believe that. I didn't receive that. I didn't respond to that. I thought drugs could do that. And they about killed me. <laughs> Alcoholism. Okay? Drug abuse. I've got a cousin right now who's in prison again. Uh, he's addicted to Oxycontin. I mean, he cut, cut off his ear in prison, cut off part of his ear in prison for drugs. That's where that... See, we look at drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff and say, yes, boy, it's great and fun. I mean, wake up. Hello. That does not bring peace and happiness. That does not bring fulfillment. That's, it just plain, flat, does not. Drugs. Um, we live in this, what, what I would like to be called, sin is false reality. Sin is false reality. Uh, for instance, you take, uh, I've heard this from several people who have sexual addictions and porn and that kind of stuff. And it's a false reality that I refuse to allow the truth of God to meet, my, meet those needs in my life. And I refuse that and I reject that. And I create an own little false reality here where I can bring another individual in my life and I can manipulate them and use them for my purpose. And it's not true. You come out of that kind of thing and people live in that. It's the same thing. And I, I game. I do online gaming. And uh, I, I meet people online and they have no life but the online game. They live in a virtual world. They live there. And there's nothing wrong with gaming, but literally that meets the needs in their life. Work. It's a false reality that this brings me happiness. This gives me, this gives me uh, a position. This gives me uh, a self-worth. This gives me... I see it a lot in these days in terms of parents exploiting their children in sports. I mean, we go on and on about this. It's living in a false reality. And, and those kinds of 
There's two camps that you can be in. You can be shaped by truth or you can be shaped by something else. What prophecy is about, what the book of Revelation is about, is God says, hey, I have set out to redeem mankind. Adam was the first one I created. He fell in sin. He started living for himself. He did not allow me to meet his needs. And hey, he plunged his, him and his a whole human race into sin. The book of Revelation is everything that I set out to accomplish in the redemption of man is found completed in Jesus Christ. What's going on in Jesus, I want to go on inside of you. Would you give yourself to that? Would you respond to that? That I'll complete everything that I started in your life. And you have an opportunity. You can say, no, thank you. I've got this gig going on. You can respond to truth or you can respond to something else. You can be shaped by the truth of God's word and what he says. Or you can be shaped by sex drive. You can be shaped by money. You can be shaped by sports. You can be shaped by position. I mean, hey, pick one. It doesn't really matter. The reality of the matter is there are two groups. There's going to be two people in the day of judgment. There's going to be two people. Those who are going, yes, I've been shaped by him and I gave myself to him. I responded to him. And one group that says, oh, man. And it'll be a little bit more pronounced than, oh, man. Not, oh, man. Not that kind of, oh, man. They're going to be weeping and mourning. And that's so final. That declaration of truth is so powerful that it's to shape our life right now. I want to be honest with you. Everything that Jesus has ever told me has come to pass. He's been faithful every single time. As I continue to respond to Him, He's never lied to me. His Word is absolutely golden. I want to ask you tonight, what's, what's shaping you? What's shaping you? It's so easy to be shaped. I want to be shaped by His Word. I want to be shaped by truth. I am so tired, and I'm worse at this. You'd be ashamed of me. I, I am, I'm tired of being shaped by my emotions. I'm tired of being dictated by the way I feel. Tonight, packed up the motorhome. Turn on my key, check engine light comes on. Oh! <laughs> I was telling one of the guys tonight we came in, they were here early, and I'm not letting that shape me anymore. I'm not going to let that dictate the way that I feel. I meet people who their favorite sports team loses and that shapes the way they treat their family for the next week. You know how retarded that is? I don't want to be shaped like that, man. I want to be shaped by truth. And the same person will come to a service and God will move and it'll be great. We'll walk out of there and go, well, that's all right. Missing lost. I want to be shaped by truth. Are bad things going to happen? Well, I guess. Good night. Am I going to like it? Am I going to go, whoa, streets of gold? Wow. No, I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to be shaped by that. I'm not going to be dictated by that. I'm not going to let my life rise and fall on those kind of things. I want my life to rise and fall on one thing. I want to be shaped by him. I want, I want to live in the reality of his truth and let that dictate my life. And I, I want that for you tonight. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. Father, there's a whole group of us here who love you, and I've seen their smiling faces every night, and they've come and they've responded, you've been so good. Maybe they're like me. Maybe they're just so slippery. 
I'm a very impressionable person. I'm type A personality. I get carried away so easily with something. I don't, I don't have second and third and fourth gear. I've got stop and sixth gear. I've got stop and 100 miles an hour. And emotionally, I'm like that. And I get so self-absorbed in things. I'm so one-track minded. I'm just... Could that all be channeled on you tonight? Maybe that's a maturity thing that you're dealing with in me. Jeremiah, good's going to come. Bad's going to come. Persecution's going to come. Oh, get wrapped up in me, Jeremiah. Oh, let me shape you, Jeremiah. Hey, don't let the cares of this world get bog you down. Brush that stuff off. Run. Run after me, boy. Get wrapped up into me. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to give you an opportunity to respond just briefly and let you out of here. But are, you, are you tired of being shaped by things other than truth? I came to a point in my marriage that when my wife gets up and she's not a morning person, and I've never understood why she just doesn't wake up at five and sing and dance and, you know, and come frolicking throughout the motorhome and praising God for the sun that's going to rise in 45 minutes. She's not like me. I refused... I, ref I came to a point where I refused to let my wife's attitude or emotional state in the morning or whatever the natural, not bad kind of person she is, I refuse to let that affect me. I'm finding this with my boy and my son. I bet this is going to be a key thing in his life as he grows older. The steadiness of me and my walk with God to an unsteady developing kid. I wonder what that would be like when he gets a teenager and all the different things and the emotional changes and the, and the hormones and all the stuff that's going on and the emotional social pressures, he's changing. I, I want him to see a dad who lives and focuses and absolutely refuses to be shaped by anything but Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's not preaching stuff. That's my art kind of stuff. I, I do. I want to be shaped by the person. I want to be shaped by the truth. I want to respond to truth and not respond to anything else. I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. If you're tired, if he's speaking to you tonight specifically that you've never been shaped by truth or, or maybe you've been shaped by some things and he's talking to you about that tonight, let's just respond and let's say, Jesus, hey, take me to a new level in my walk with you. And in a few moments, pastor's going to come and he's going to dismiss us.